1: Thank you for taking the time to listen. The subjects for today's show are the Kon Tiki, rapi nui, and the Moe. Before we start getting into details, let's just briefly talk about psychic insight and how we apply it.
2: We choose a subject and research it, and based on that research, we determine what we think needs to be explained by creating a series of questions. Then Justina provides psychic insight to answer those questions. The psychic insight is narrated towards the end of the show. Accepting the psychic insight is a question of individual belief. Now let's go through the disclaimers.
1: Here are the disclaimers. Neither of us claim to have any expertise in any subjects that we discuss. We relate information we find through research and the psychic insight. We are always delighted to hear from the listeners. The show only lasts an hour. We don't have the time to present a research on any topic. This means that there will be information that we miss. We want to provide a basis for the psychic insight. We don't care if a theory turns out too good to be true, as the show name suggests. We are only interested in finding out more of the truth about topics. Spirit can only relate insight that is appropriate for our time in history. Free will cannot be affected. Only comments that are appropriate for our time can be given through the psychic insight. Much of the subject matter in shows may have already been covered many times in other media. We want to look into subjects in a new, different way and be thought-provoking. We're not so good with pronouncing names. We apologize. And neither of us have any particular knowledge of anthropology or archaeology. If we have misstated anything, we apologize.
2: Today's subjects are centered on Easter Island, where there have been some recent discoveries. But first, we had better explain what Kontiki, Rapanui, Rapa Nui, and the Maui all mean.
1: The Maui are those famous large stone figures of heads on Easter Island.
2: The Rapa Nui is the name of the people of Easter Island and also their name for Easter Island. The kontiki is a raft with sails made out of balsa wood, known the Kontiki Museum in Oslo, Norway.
1: Starting with a kontiki, what is so special about balsa wood?
2: Balsa trees are grown for harvest from Southern Mexico to Northern Brazil. The tree produces soft, very lightweight wood, which has a high strength to weight ratio, which, which is why it is used for model aircraft, for example. The word balsa comes from the Spanish word for raft.
1: So what is the connection between Norway and South America?
2: None except the explorer headed of the team that included five other Scandinavians that built and sailed to Contiki was Tor Hairedale, a Norwegian. Their story, including a, another crew member who was a parrot, was captured on film winning the Oscar for the best documentary movie in 1951. Their story seems to have been a little forgotten about, so it's great to recall their exploits.
1: So, what was their story?
2: Tor Heyerdahl had a point to prove, as described by Wikipedia, quote, Heyerdahl believed that people from South America could have settled Polynesia in pre-Columbian times. His aim in mounting the Contigui expedition was to show by using only the materials and technologies available to those people at the time that there was no technical reasons to prevent them from having done so, unquote. Pre-Columbian times means before 1492 when Columbus voyaged to the Americas. Tonki Contiki is the old name for the Incan sun god, with the Incans being a former South American empire that included Peru.
1: Getting back to the Pacific Ocean, I'm not clear exactly on how extensive Polynesia actually is. I do know that it includes the Hawaiian Islands.
2: Polynesia is described in Wikipedia as follows, quote, Polynesia is a sub-region of Oceania made up of more than a thousand islands scattered over Central and Southern Pacific Ocean. The indigenous people who inhabit the islands of Polynesia are termed Polynesians, and share many similar traits, including language, family, culture, and beliefs. Historically, they have a strong tradition of sailing and using stars to navigate at night. The largest country in Polynesia is New Zealand, unquote.
1: So the Contiki expedition was all about sailing a tiny raft on the largest ocean in the world and hopefully surviving to tell the story.
2: That's correct, with Wikipedia giving an account of the voyage as follows, quote, Contiki left Callao, Peru, on the afternoon of April 28, 1947. to avoid to avoid coastal traffic. was initially towed eighty kilometres or fifty miles out to out by the fleet tug Guardian Rear, of the Peruvian Navy. Then sailed roughly west, carried along on the Humboldt Current. The crew's first sight of land was at the atoll of Puka Puka on July thirtieth. On August fourth, the ninety-seventh the day after departure. Contiki reached the Angatu Atoll. The crew made brief contact with the inhabitants of Angatu Island but were unable to land safely. Calculations made by Heyerdahl before the trip had indicated that 97 days was the minimum amount of time to reach the, tu- the Tuamatu Islands, so the encounter with Angatu showed that they had made good time. On August the 7th, the voyage came to an end when the raft struck a reef and was eventually beached on an, un, an uninhabited islet off of Rao Atoll in the Tu group. The team had travelled a distance of around 6,980 kilometres, 4,340 miles, 3,770 nautical miles in 101 days, at an average speed of 1.5 knots, 2.8 kilometres an hour, or 1.7 miles per hour, unquote. Angatu Island and the Tuamoto Islands are in French Polynesia, which is a group of islands in the center of the Southern Pacific Ocean at about the same latitude as Australia.
1: So they sailed a greater distance than crossing the Atlantic at less than a walking pace, with Tor Heyerdale proving his point while making a great movie in the process. But were there any other expeditions?
2: Torheildo made other expeditions, including rafts made of papyrus or reeds, but there was another voyage made with a simple raft that hit the headlines, the Cantiki Expedition of 1977. A raft made from 15,000 beer cans successfully sailed from Darwin, Australia, to Singapore.
1: Uh, What was the point of that?
2: Officially to promote trade and tourism, but I think it only proves that the typical Australian Has a great sense of humour, and that Colbert is popular is a popular beverage in warm and hot climates. But in recent but in recent times, there has there was the Contiki 2 expedition, as described by Wikipedia as follows: quote The Contiki 2 expedition built and sailed two balsa wood rafts from Peru to Easter Island in 2015. The goal of the expedition was to show that balsa wood rafts can be sailed across long distances and to collect scientific data in the Southeast Pacific. The expedition built two rafts in 30 days and went on to sail the rafts more than 200 nautical miles before reaching Easter Island after 43 days at sea. No other balsa rafts have sailed to Easter Island in modern times. On the return journey from Easter Island to South America, the expedition was terminated after 71 days at sea due to the difficult weather conditions. By then, the rafts, The rafts had sailed halfway to South America. All crew members were taken aboard a Japanese freighter and later transported to shore by the Chilean Armada. Expedition leader Torgir Higraf chose to terminate the expedition to avoid risking the life of crew members. The expedition built and sailed two balsa wood rafts, Rahiti Tane and Tupac Yupanqui. The rafts were similar to Con- the Contiki raft built by Tor Haredal Hord- Hord- in 1947. Like the Contiki, Rahiti Tani and Tupac Yupanqui were built from, also were transported from Ecuador to Sima, the Peruvian army shipyard, shipyard in Callao, Lima. However, the Contiki II rafts were different in several respects. Contiki had a r- rudder, while the Contiki two rafts were steered by Guara boards, which allowed the rafts to be sailed in crosswinds. The Kontiki two rafts had modern satellite equipment on board, in addition to solar panels and scientific equipment." Expedition leader Torgeir Higrav is a Norwegian explorer, teacher and author. The weather conditions for the return journey have also been described as unusual. The crew were from many different countries
1: so that demonstrates perhaps with the right primitive technology you could arrive at your intended destination but without maps how would you know where that was but how widely accepted is the work of all these intrepid explorers
2: i would say controversial a smithsonian magazine article from 2014 authored by doug herman entitled Had the voyage of the contigui misled the world about navigating the pacific includes the following, quote, Hyder argued that the Pacific had been settled by accidental drift voyaging from the Americas. His argument was based largely on the wind and the current patterns in the Pacific, which flow predominantly from east to west. Where the oral tradition posed Polynesians voyaging against the wind, Hyder argued it was more likely that the American Indians drifted with the wind. He made his bias particularly clear by designing his Contiki raft to be unsteerable. There's no doubt that the voyage of the Contiki was a great adventure, three months on the open sea on a raft, drifting at the mercy of the winds and currents. That they did eventually reach Polynesia proved that such drift voyaging was possible, but all other evidence pointed to southeastern Asian origins, oral tradition, archaeological data, Linguistic structures and the trail of human introduced plants. Today we have a strong we have strong evidence that Poly, Polynesians actually reached the Americas, not vice versa. Unquote.
1: So the Rapa Nui of Easter Island could have actually had ancestors from Southwest Asia, Southeast Asia from the west, rather than South America from the east. But after this short break, we'll have to talk more about Easter Island and how many people live there. And you're listening to Too Good to Be True with Justina Marsh and Peter Marsh on the Exxon Broadcast Network, www.xcbn.net.
3: Yeah. Guys, you'll never guess what my psychic guru just told me. S-I-M-U-L-T-V dot com. Exactly. Are you guys psychic too? Of course. We all know about simultv dot com. dot com.
1: Welcome back to Too Good to Be True. And before the break, we are just about to talk about Easter Island and how big Easter Island is and how many people live there. Dad, can you answer those questions?
2: Well, Wikipedia does and describes the Rapa Nui as follows, quote, The Rapa Nui are the aboriginal Polynesian inhabitants of Easter Island in the Pacific Ocean. The easternmost Polynesian culture, the descendants of the original people of Rapa Nui, Easter Island, make up about 60% of the current Rapa Nui population and have a significant portion of their population residing in mainland Chile. They speak both in a traditional Rapa Nui language and the primary language of Chile, Spanish. At the 2002 census, there were 3,000 three island inhabitants, almost all living in the village of Hanga Roa on the sheltered west coast. As of 2011, Rapa Nui's main source of income was derived from tourism, which focuses, focuses on a giant sculpture called Moe, unquote. Easter Island is similar to the Hawaiian Islands being volcanic. Its highest point is Mount Teravaka, 1,969 feet, 600 meters above sea level. Easter Island is only about 24.6 kilometers, 15.3 miles long, by 12.3 kilometers, 7.6 miles at its widest point. Easter Island is one of the most remote inhabited islands in the world. Was named by the Dutch explorer who encountered the island on Easter Sunday of 1722. The Moe are made in one piece from solidified volcanic ash of the Rano Raraku volcano and are believed to be carved using basalt stone tools.
1: Did Tor Heyerdahl ever visit Easter Island?
2: Yes, he, he led the first archaeological expedition to the island. The following quote is from the Bradshaw Foundation website. Quote, the famous Norwegian anthropologist Tor Heyerdahl led the first archaeological expedition to Easter Island in 1955 to 56. In 1962, he gave a series of lectures to the Swedish Society of Anthropology and Geography in Stockholm. His lectures can be read in his book, Sea Routes to Polynesia. Quoting from a text of the lecture on the statues, he says, at some unidentified date prior to AD 380, the first settlers landed on Easter Island and found a verdant island covered by trees, shrubs, and palms. He proved this to be true with the extensive pollen samples taken from the crater lakes with the aid of 26 feet long cords from the sediments. His excavation proved that there were three separate epochs in the history of Easter Island, which the archaeologists have named early, middle, and late periods. In the early period, there was no production of giant statues, only altar-like elevations of very large and most precisely cut and joined stones. Which were erected with their facades towards the ocean, and a sunken court on the inland side. They were astronomically oriented and con- and constructed by highly specialized stonemasons, who studied the annual movement of the sun, and in their religious architecture. Unquote.
1: I know that you are fascinated by giant statues. Between which years were they created?
2: The Bradshaw Foundation article continues. Quote, not until the second period where the well-known giant statues quarried and placed on the platforms. The archaeologists believe that during this period, around AD 1100, the Birdman cult arrived and marked the commencement of the raising of, of the large, large ancestor statues. During a period of less than six centuries, more than 600 giant ancestor statues were carved from the quarries on the slopes of Reno Raraku after the forests had been cleared. When the statue production reached its peak, the island engineers were able to erect statues up to 40 feet tall, weighing more than 80 tons, and balance a redstone cylinder hat weighing up to 12 tons on top of its head. A gigantic statue 70 feet long was left almost completely by the sculptors in the quarry when the catastrophe occurred about AD 1680, The catastrophe that occurred around AD 1680 was apparently one of warfare and destruction 40 feet is about 12 meters, 70 feet is about 21 meters, while a ton is much the same if in metric or in U.S. customary units.
1: What was the Birdman cult that arrived around 1100 A.D.?
2: The Just Wondering website provides an explanation as follows. Quote, eventually a new system of social order took hold that of the Birdman cult. This system ended conflict being an annual competition to decide the military, social and economic leader of the island for the, up, for, the up, for the coming year. Because any clan could be in power for any given year, it became difficult for any single clan to amass power and resources. The Birdman cult period was based on the theistic belief that Maki Maki, a traditional Polynesian god, held all the manna, the power and spirit that used to be imbued in the moe, and fertilized the island. Each year the symbolic representation of Maki Maki, the Tangatu Manu Birdman, was selected through the competition. The competition was held around July and August when the first birds came to nest on the island. The king of each clan would pick a, pick a hopu Manu, a young athletic male representative to complete to compete. They all assembled at the ceremonial village of Orongo where the competition started where the kings, queens and priests would stay to watch the competition unfold. From Orongo, the Hopu Manu descended 300 metres from the top of the volcano down to the sea. They then braved the currents and the sharks to swim out to the small island of Motu Nui. There they set up camp to await the Manutara seagulls. Killing of fellow opponents was allowed. The first person to find the Manatura egg, bring it back, intact in to Orongo at the top of the volcano, presented to his king, won the competition. The winning king became the Tongatu Mano, the one who received all of the manor and channeled it for the island for the following year. He went into seclusion living in a ceremonial house. His clan controlled the Matatoa, a select group of warriors who hailed from all clans and received tributes from all other clans, unquote. 300 meters is almost 1,000 feet.
1: It doesn't sound like fun being in mortal danger for carrying a seagull egg. But what happened next in the third epoch or period that was referred to earlier?
2: The article continues as follows. Quote, the period was initiated by the sudden end of all work in the Reno-Rara-Ku quarries. During this period, the statues were one by one over the throne and everywhere are evidence of warfare and destruction when the first Europeans settled ashore and became able to communicate direct with the Easter Islanders, they were told of two different arrivals, one from the east and one from the west. They consistently stressed that after a period of peaceful coexistence, their forefathers had almost exterminated the original people, thus leaving the present Polynesian population as sole inhabitants of Easter Island. Tor Heyerdahl and his colleagues collected a great deal of evidence concerning the early period. Aquatic plants and the building of reed boats, the use of double-blade paddles, one-piece stone fish hooks, shape of the dwellings, stone pounders and needles, all point to the east and are not found in the west. Thus, see the existence of the Rongo-Rongo tablets. The Easter Island script was incised on wooden tablets. The only other place that this type of script has been found is among the early Indians who lived around Lake Titicaca, high in the Andes. There was no evidence that the Polynesian people ever had the ability to write or invent a script. Even the question of how did they get there? When
1: did DNA testing indicate where the ancestors came from, either the west or the east?
2: The latest DNA results were widely published in October 2017, suggesting that the ancestors didn't come from South America to the east. The upcoming discussion is confusing, but don't worry, there's a reason for that. Here is a quote from the Science Mag website, quote, the results shocked Lars Ferrin Schmitz, a biological anthropologist at the University of California, Santa Cruz, who led the study. When he sequenced genomes from the rib bones of five individuals who lived on Rapa Nui before and after European contact, he expected to find a population with mixed Polynesian and Native American ancestry. Polynesian voyages to and from South America through thousands of kilometers just seem to be plausible, he says. And archeological evidence shows that the sweet potato domesticated 8,000 years ago in Peru had spread to the Polynesian islands as early as 1,000 common era. But the DNA of the individuals who lived between the 13th and 19th centuries showed no signs of Native American ancestry. Ferenc Schmitz and his colleagues write today in current biology. This contradicts a 2014 study, also published in Current Biology, that analyzed the genomes of 27 modern Rapa Nui, who, like most people who live on the island today, have Polynesian, European, and Native American ancestry. About 8% of their DNA was inherited from Native American ancestors appearing in their genomes in short bursts rather than long stretches. Because the contribution of each group's DNA becomes more fragmented over time, that's a strong signal of a long-ago meeting between different populations. Based on the length of the Native American DNA sequence, the researchers concluded that the Rapa Nui's Polynesian and Native American ancestors must have met at least 19 generations ago, between 1280 Common Era and 1495 Common Era, Long before the Europeans arrived on the island in seventeen twenty two common Era unquote.
1: it sounds like they may be future DNA studies in the future.
2: The same articles with a debate over the differing two thousand and seventeen and two thousand and fourteen results, but we'll have to talk about that after the break, and it gets even more confusing.
1: We'll continue after this short break and you're listening to Too Good to Be True with Justina Marsh and Pete Marsh on the Exxon Broadcast Network, www.xcbn.net. Welcome back to Too Good to be True, and before the break, Dad, you were quoting from the Science Mag website, and we were just going to talk about the differing results between the DNA in 2017 and 2014.
2: Yes, I'll continue the article. Quote, there are a few ways to explain the discrepancy, researchers say. The most likely, says Anna Sapfo Malaspanas, a population geneticist at the University of Lausanne in Switzerland who led the 2014 research, is that when the, the pre-Columbian individuals, Ferenc Schmidts analyzed were alive, contact with Native Americans was recent and their genetic signature hadn't yet spread to the whole population of Rapa Nui. One would like to see more individuals before you really, you really say there was no contact, agrees Hans Schroeder, an ancient DNA researcher at the University of Copenhagen, who wasn't involved in either paper. But Ferenc Schmitz proposes another possibility. Some of the colonial slave traders who targeted Rapa Nui were from Peru, where European and Native American genes have mixed since the 16th century. When they arrived on the island in the 18th and 19th centuries, they they already carried short bursts of Native American DNA, and they could have passed those on to the still purely Polynesian Rapa Nui that might have made it look like contact between Polynesians and Native Americans happened long before it actually did," he says,
1: What other recent discoveries do we have time to talk about?
2: Excuse me. A team from the University of California, Los Angeles, had spent nine years studying around 1,000 statues. They discovered that the statues appear as heads because their torsos and truncated waists have been buried over the centuries. They also made further discoveries as included in a 2017 Forbes magazine article as follows quote in order to carve and place the statues upright the Rapa Nui used large tree trunks that were placed into deep holes adjacent to the statues they then used rope and large tree trunks to lift the statue upright in place the Rapa Nui carved their heads and front side of the statues while they were lying on the ground then completed the backs after uprighting the stone statues. The tallest of these statues comes in at 33 feet high and is known as paro. Abundant red pigment was found at the human burial sites of several individuals, suggesting that statues were painted red, likely during ceremonies. These burials often surrounded the statues, suggesting that the Rapa Nui buried their dead with their family's statue, unquote. There's also the recent news that the location of the Maui could be associated with water sources. The following is from Forbes magazine from February of 2019. Quote, research published in the journal PLOS One used computerized spatial analysis to study the locations of 93 Ahus located on the eastern portion of the island and to analyze their relationship with available resources such as land to plant crops and sweet potatoes fishing spots and springs with fresh water. The analysis shows that the statues were usually located near the sources of drinkable water, An ahu is a stone platform.
1: With that, it is time for the first question.
2: Why was Tor Heyerdahl so motivated by the belief that people from South America could have settled in Polynesia, that he would put his life and that of his colleagues on the line to prove his point?
1: Basically, just a strong belief system. So he just believed inside of him and inside of his heart that that is what happened. So he was driven to the, the belief and fully believed it. So there's not much of an explanation. It's just what he thought.
2: In Polynesia, made up of more than a thousand islands scattered over the central and southern Pacific Ocean, is that too large an area to assume a single anthropological classification? yes. Is looking at a too large a group part of the problem in understanding where the Polynesians originated?
1: Yes, and also not looking at the smaller clues too. Some of the smaller clues have just been brushed off.
2: How was Tor Heyerdahl so accurate in his prediction that 97 days was the minimum amount of time required to meet the Tuamoto, to reach the Tuamoto islands?
1: Again, just his belief, so he just knew that information.
2: What really had tired Tor Heyerdahl proven, aside from his theory, is feasible, but requiring meticulous planning and favorable weather to make a successful voyage.
1: He also proved that his beliefs had a basis in fact. So he also proved that even though he just knew some information, the information was still correct.
2: What was the probability that the crew of the Contiki would not live to tell the tale?
1: It was the highest probability. So again, there were many factors. And every time people go on expeditions, there's always a chance that the planning is not fully ready or there are other factors such as weather, climate or things like that.
2: Why does the Contiki story seem to be largely forgotten since winning the Oscar for the best documentary in 1951?
1: Basically, since a lot of movies come in and out of trends. So there are so many different movies. So some movies are just forgotten about since newer movies come out and people tend to watch the newer stuff and not the older stuff.
2: What was the real purpose of the Australian Kantiki expedition of 1977?
1: Basically just curiosity and also to figure out what was really going on. So exploring and also mapping the area.
2: So there was a serious point to the Kantiki expedition?
1: Yes, but obviously the whole thing was made to be not super serious.
2: Besides using rafts with the ability to steer, what was the point of the Contiki-2 expedition in 2015, which involved sending two balsa wood rafts from Peru to Easter Island?
1: Basically, the second one was just to prove that it was still possible. So a lot of people doubted the first one, so they just wanted to give more evidence and also make it more relevant for the whole concept.
2: Does the ability to steer suggest it would have been possible to navigate against the wind? Yes. Does the ability to steer suggest a better chance of survival and somehow knowing the intended destination?
1: Yes then no. Sometimes people just ended up in places that they were surprised about. But yes, if they had one destination in mind, you would need to know how to get there.
2: Why was it necessary to use rafts to collect scientific data from the Southeast Pacific?
1: Since that's what's more feasible, so rafts actually worked quite well. And based on previous years of travel, that's most likely, at least, to do a lot that other people used.
2: What sort of scientific data was collected?
1: Basically mapping out the pass again, so mapping out the area, but mapping it on more of the ocean-level data, and also mapping some of the weather conditions and different information about the ocean.
2: What was, the, what was unusual about the weather conditions that prevented the return journey from being completed?
1: Basically where the tides were at and how the ocean was reacting, so it was more unpredictable than they thought.
2: What happened to the two rafts when the return journey was cut short?
1: They were basically just left.
2: Where our oral tradition suggests that Polynesians voyaged against the wind, was Tor Heyerdahl still correct in arguing that people from South America drifted with the wind?
1: That could be said.
2: Were ocean currents and wind directions different years ago when there was migration to the Polynesian Islands?
1: Yes, of course. Things change over time, and the oceans, again, are very unpredictable.
2: Does evidence point to southeastern Southeast Asian origins for Polynesians, including oral tradition, archaeological data, linguistic structures, and the trail of human-introduced plants?
1: For the most part, yes.
2: Is there any evidence that Polynesians reached the Americas and not vice versa?
1: Not really, no.
2: At some unidentified date prior to 380 AD, did the first settlers land on Easter Island, finding a verdant island?
1: There was some exploration in the area before that, but they were the first ones to make more of a settlement, yes.
2: But the island was covered by trees, shrubs and palms? Yes. Were there three separate epochs in the history of Easter Island, which have been named early, middle, and late periods? Yes. In the early period, was there a production of altar-like elevations of very large and precisely cut and joined stones, with their facades facing towards the ocean, and in a sunken core on the inland side? Yes. Were the altar-like elevations astronomically oriented, and constructed by highly specialized stonemasons who studied the annual movement of the sun? Yes. <clears throat> Excuse me. What was the purpose of the altar like elevations?
1: The purpose cannot be fully understood yet, but basically it was to help, you could say, collect the sunlight and use the sunlight.
2: Was it not until the second period, starting around 1100 A.T., that the well known giant statues were recorded and placed on platforms?
1: Approximately, yes.
2: Had the platforms been constructed earlier or at about the same time?
1: Earlier.
2: Were the earlier altar like elevation used as platforms for the sta- stone statues or moe?
1: Yes.
2: At the time of the second period around 1100 AD, did the Birdman cult arrive and mark the commencement of the raising of the large stone statues known as the moe?
1: Again, approximately, but yes.
2: How did the Birdman cult arrive? Were there new people arriving by sea or was it developed within the same civilization?
1: but i see
2: where did the people brought the birdman cult originate
1: more asian countries
2: did the birdman cult end conflict due to an annual competition held to decide the military social and economic leader of the island for the upcoming year yes because the clan, because any clan could be in power for any given year did it become more difficult for any single clan to amass power and resources
1: Yes, I did, and it made forming the different groups and helping the different people very difficult.
2: I think we don't have time for the next question before the break, Justina.
1: Yes, we'll continue with the questions and psychic insight after this short break. And you're listening to To Be True with Justina Marsh and Pete Marsh on the X-Zone Broadcast Network, www.xzbn.net.
3: Yeah, guys, you'll never guess what my psychic guru just told me. Simultv.com. Exactly. Are you guys psychic too? Of course. We all know about Simultv.com. Simultv.com.
1: Welcome back to Too Good to Be True. And before the break, we were going through the questions and the psychic insight about Easter Island. So, Dad, can you please continue with the questions?
2: Sure, Justina. Was the Birdman cult period based on the belief that Maki Maki, a traditional Polynesian god, made the island fertile? Yes. Did Maki Maki hold all the mana, the parent spirit that was imparted to the giant statues, the Moe?
1: That's what it was like.
2: Was each year the symbolic representation of Maki Maki, the Tangatu Manu or Birdman, selected through the competition? Yes. Was the Tangatu Mano competition held around July and August when the first birds came to nest on the island?
1: Approximately again, but yes.
2: Did the king of each clan pick a Hopu Mano, a young athletic male representative, to compete?
1: Yes, kind of like the Olympics.
2: Did the competition start at the ceremonial village of Orongo, where the kings, queens, and priests would stay to watch the competition unfold?
1: Yes, that's true.
2: From Orongo, did the Hopumanu descend 300 meters from the top of the volcano down to the sea to brave the currents and the sharks to swim out to the small island of Motu Nui? Yes. On Motu Nui, did they set up camp to await the Manatura or seagulls?
1: Yes, and also a different sign, too, where the sun was in the right area.
2: Was killing a fellow opponents actually allowed?
1: Yes, it was.
2: Was the first person to find a manatara or seagull egg and bring it back intact to Orongo at the top of the volcano to present it to his king, the winner of the competition. Yes. Did the winning king become the Tangatu Mano, the one who received all of the mana, the parent spirit from the makimaki, channeling it for the island for the following year. Yes. Did the winning king go into seclusion sort of and live in a ceremonial house?
1: Yes, and also get gifts from the people.
2: Did the winning clan control the Matatoa, a select group of warriors who hailed from all clans, receiving tributes from all other clans?
1: Yes, and also was able to train them how he wanted to.
2: Are the Moe statues the ancestors of their builders, or do they signify, signify something else?
1: They were the ancestors of their builders and important figures.
2: Why were large redstone cylinder hats placed on the heads of the statues?
1: Basically, as a protection factor, you could say.
2: What was the protection from?
1: The sun and outside resources, so as to keep them safe from the outside.
2: At the time of the catastrophe, around 1680 AD, why was a gigantic statue that was 70 feet long and almost complete just left in the quarry?
1: Basically, because of corruption. So there were different belief systems, and you can think of them as belief systems not agreed, therefore got destroyed.
2: After hundreds of statues have been built, what was the catastrophe that occurred around 1680 AD besides warfare and destruction?
1: Mother conditions too, so they were changing of how people got their food, along with even different ways and weather hitting the islands.
2: Was the end of the second period marked by the sudden end of all work in the Reno-Ra-Raku quarries? Yes. During this period, were the statues overthrown one by one, along with evidence of warfare and destruction?
1: Not always one by one, but destroyed, yes.
2: Who put the Moe statues back up, and when did they do it?
1: The people after the wars so it was about 50 years after.
2: When the first Europeans settled ashore and became able to communicate directly with the local population, were they told of two different arrivals, one from the east and one from the west?
1: They were told miscommunication, yes, so there were obviously a large language barrier that didn't help.
2: Were there actually two arrivals, one from the east and one from the west?
1: There were multiple arrivals, yes. So there was more than one arrival over time, yes.
2: As communicated to the first European settlers, after a period of peaceful coexistence, had the population's forefathers almost exterminated the original people, thus leaving the present Polynesian population as sole inhabitants? Yes. Did the evidence that Tor hired and his colleagues collect from the the island point to eastern rather than western origins?
1: For that evidence, yes. But again, you have to look in the right places to see where the evidence actually is. So there's still more evidence.
2: Was the eastern island script included on the Rongo Rongo tablets only used elsewhere by the earlier Indians who lived around Lake Titicaca, high in the Andes?
1: That could be said, yes.
2: With no evidence that the Polynesian people had the ability to write or invent a script, how did the Rongo Rongo tablets get to Easter Island?
1: Someone brought them.
2: How could sweet potatoes originated in Peru have spread to the Polynesian island around a 1,000 years ago when a 2017 DNA study of five individuals who lived on the island before and after European contact showed no signs of Native American ancestry?
1: The problem is just because someone visited doesn't mean they stayed. So there's the idea that if people traveled in the past, they stayed in the area, but some kind, some people kind of just passed through. So it wasn't an exploration that always ended where they think it ended.
2: So Tor Hardel was right that people did navig- navigate using primitive craft, but they didn't necessarily stay at a single destination and then populate it.
1: Yes, very correct.
2: How could the 2017 DNA study contradict the earlier 2014 DNA study from 27 modern islanders that showed about 8% of their DNA was inherited from Native American ancestors appearing in their genomes in short bursts rather than long stretches?
1: Again, the problem is that a lot of more ancient DNA is very similar. So it's very hard to tell exactly where it came from. So sometimes there is an overlap, but it also is dependent on which factors in the DNA they're actually looking at. So for these studies, they have to line up 100% for them to be comparable.
2: Was the 2014 DNA study correct in concluding that the Polynesians and Native American ancestors must have met at least 19 generations ago, between 1280 and 1495, before Europeans arrived on the island in 1722?
1: Yes, many different, more ancient civilizations met each other before Europeans decided to intervene.
2: It's an explanation for the contradictions between the 2014 and 2017 DNA studies, that when pre-Columbian individuals were alive, contact with Native Americans was recent with their genetic signature having not spread to the entire population.
1: Yes, again, it's very varied about who met who, but there's also, again, the factor. We're looking at DNA the way that scientists study DNA, and especially compared to past ancestors, has to be 100% and the same across the board. So look for significant markers in the DNA, and those have to be the same.
2: Did colonial, colonial slave traders from Peru with mixed European and Native American genes target Easter Island in the 18th and 19th centuries? Yes. Were their genes which already carried short bursts of Native American DNA passed on to the Polynesian population on the island?
1: They could have been. However, there is already a mix from previous years of different DNA and different people visiting.
2: Does the result of the 2014 study make contact between Polynesians and Native Americans look like it happened long before it actually did?
1: Not exactly, no. It did happen a lot longer than predicted.
2: In order to carve and place the Maui statues upright, were large tree trunks placed into deep holes adjacent to the statues? Yes. Were the heads and front sides of the Maui statues carved while they were lying on the ground? Yes. Were rope and large tree trunks used to upright the Maui statues in place? Yes, they were. Was the carving of the backs completed after the stone statues were pulled into the upright position?
1: For the most part, sometimes they were started beforehand, but yes, sometimes upright.
2: With abundant red red pigment being found at the human burial sites of several individuals, were the Moe statues painted red?
1: Yes, since it was more abundant than the other colours.
2: Were the Moe statues painted red during ceremonies following their completion?
1: Yes, basically celebration ceremonies.
2: Were the dead buried with the family Moe statue? Yes. Why are statues usually located near sources of drinkable water?
1: Since that's where people could continue to work on them. So it was easier so that people would have their water and be able to work on the statues and be able to have more energy, you could say.
2: Why did the population of Easter Island build the Moe statues in the first place?
1: Basically, you could say it'd be better than some of the other people. So, there was a lot of clash of, you could say, the hierarchy. So, the first people started building the statues during the celebrations, and then more, you could say, common people in different groups wanted to continue. So, there was this clash.
2: What can we learn from the history of Easter Island?
1: Basically, again, that history is all kind of doubled together, so there's still a lot of unknowns where exact dates aren't always correct, exact information isn't always correct, so the hard part is not to make these overall assumptions and instead think that anything is almost possible. There could have been many different peoples who invented different types of raft, different technologies, etc are able to travel from place to place. And the problem today is that people think differently than the people who were originally exploring and building the different civilizations. There were different thought processes and different resources even available. So the hard part is that in history, especially with different archeologists and what they are studying, is that a lot of assumptions are made. However, these assumptions aren't always based on fact and there isn't always enough evidence to even try to base these in fact.
2: That was the last answer. Is the reality that ancient civilizations were more advanced and capable than believed today too good to be true?
1: That depends on what you are prepared to believe.
2: There's not much time left, but uh, having seen the Contiki in the museum in Oslo, Norway, I can't believe how anybody would go on the Pacific Ocean in that craft. It looks bigger in the movie than it does in reality.
1: Well, on that note, if any of the listeners have suggestions, you can go over to our Facebook page at Too Good to Be True with the first two spelled T W O, our website, toogoodtobetrue.net. And as always, thank you so much for listening, and we look forward to next week's show.